All right, so we are back for uh, Thursdays at noon. Um, it should be good. And we're doing 1 Peter 3. Uh, we're going to continue through chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So we'll read that, and then we'll pray, uh, and then we'll start. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 says this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So let's ask for the Lord's help. <coughs> Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, this letter that Peter wrote, uh, for your uh, work to uh, send it and to write it. We thank you for that. Um, God, help us not to be put to shame when we suffer. Uh, help us to see that suffering is its not random, it's not an accident, um, but it's worked by your hand. Uh, it's for our good and not for our shame. Help us to trust you, help us to love your son, and help us to know that you are good um, even when we suffer. It's your sons that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to open with a kind of a quick story. Um, uh, so I think there's one thing that most people can agree on, uh, especially even unbelievers as well, is that uh, the reality and feeling of shame um, caused by suffering is just ugly. No one likes it. No one is hoping to suffer tomorrow or to be ashamed or to be mocked or made fun of. No one has hope for those things. Uh, there's nothing desirable or attractive about it. Uh, we don't like to be singled out or mocked or be that one guy that said that thing everyone makes fun of or the one guy who stood up for the, the right thing or all those things. No one likes to be that guy uh, because we're shamed. Um, and even more, it's hard in this culture when you do it for a Christian, a quote-unquote a Christian reason or a Christian theme or a biblical mandate or something like that. It's even harder. Um, it almost seems to be like doubly awkward. Um, so when I worked at uh, Lifeway uh, back in the days, uh, not long ago, uh, we had a bug problem in the back. And so we had, had to hire an orchid man for the company. And I won't give his name. We'll call him Chuck. That's what we'll call him. Uh, so Chuck came to do a sweep, and I was working in the back, and he you know, checked all the corners, and he looked around and didn't see any bugs, and things looked great. And I was listening to a sermon by John Piper, so he heard, and he, hey, is that John Piper? I said, yeah, it is, and he knows who he was. And so it was very funny to talk to an orchid man who, who knew about uh, pastoral ministry, who loved the gospel, who served at church locally. Uh, Chuck was good, and he, he loved the Bible. Uh, and then about a month or so later, he came to the store not wearing his orchid stuff, and so I made the comment, hey, you're, you're off duty, what's going on? And he said, oh, actually, I had to quit. And I was kind of like, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. Uh, so Chuck continued to tell me uh, this, that he had a long addiction to pornography for a long time. Uh, from his youth up until he got married, even in, into his marriage. And as an orphan man, you were given uh, either like an iPhone or a smartphone, some kind of uh, smartphone to use so that you can be used on call. So that if there's a call like down the street, if you get it, that's immediate, or if you need to help someone out or cover somebody, they can call you up, and you can't not have it on. It has to be by your bedside, it has to be in your car, wherever you are. And so Chuck, knowing where he was in regards to purity and wrestling with sin, he said, hey, I have a free software. I can just download on this phone. 
It won't cost the company any money. I've already paid for it. And I can just filter any internet content. So I don't have to worry about stumbling or sinning. So as a good employee, knowing that he wants to honor Christ and his wife and also work, uh, he asks his manager, he says, hey, can I do this? You know, can I install it? It won't cost you guys a dime. Uh, I've already paid for it. Um, here's the deal. I don't want to sin. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to do this. Um, and they mocked him. They kind of just made it like a, that's dumb. No, you don't need to do that at all. That's, that's nonsense. Uh, but Chuck fought. And he said, okay, look, I, I won't take my phone with me if it doesn't have it on there. So long story short, they had talked for a while. And they you know, said it was absurd. So we quit. Because that was the only way that he could get out of this sin was to quit. And of course, now this last part is some conjecture. We don't know what was said after he left uh, amongst the bosses and the people. We can probably assume it wasn't fun. It wasn't kind. It was probably mockery. You know, the, the goody two-shoes guy who can't hold his internet safe or has to worry about his wife feeling sad or whatever. Um, but for us, we know that he was shamed and suffered for good. We don't see that as good. It makes no sense. Uh, but what's good news is uh, he does not have a job for his family, so I do know that. But the difference between uh, shame and suffering for the Christian and unbeliever is different. Um, so for the Christian now, when we're shamed and we suffer, uh, it seems unfair, it doesn't seem right. And for the unbeliever, and when they're doing the shaming and, doing, and they're in charge of the suffering, uh, they don't seem to have any, anything happen to them. But for the Christian in eternity, this will be reversed. For, for those in Christ, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 6 says, Those who hope in Him will not be put to shame. So at the final judgment, though we suffered and were shamed on earth, in front of Christ, in front of the throne, there will be no shame, no suffering, no sorrow. Uh, we'll be welcomed to eternity with joy and rest because of Christ. But for those on earth who were in charge of shaming or in charge of suffering, uh, the opposite will happen. They will stand before Christ. All their sin will be exposed. All their shame will be uncovered. And they will face the wrath and the suffering of God for eternity apart from Him. And that's, that's one of the things that suffering, it just seems, that we, that's why we don't like it, because we don't see it now. We want to see it now. We don't understand. And we, we don't want to wait. But for the Christian in suffering, God's design is always to refine. It's never meant to hurt or to harm. It's, it's to code. It's to change. It's to, it's to mold you and shape you. And that's God's design in it. So for suffering, for now... We're going to see that God does do these things to refine us, to purify us. That's his purpose in them. And how kind of God to do that. So I think what Peter is going to show us here by the Holy Spirit are a couple things. Um, that in suffering, it's going to make us do certain things. It's going to make us look to the reward. It's going to make us see Christ as the Lord of all things. It'll help us to know and defend the faith better. And overall, we'll be able to trust in the sovereignty of God. So first, I want us to see uh, the reward of suffering that Peter, uh, through the Holy Spirit, promises here. So in verse 13, it says this, um, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So it's kind of a summary of verses 8 through 12, that whole section about do good, turn from evil, watch your mouth, don't be speaking lies, don't be uh, saying crude things, do good instead of repaying evil for evil, repay good for evil. So overall, if you're doing those things, who's going to attack you, Christian? Like, you know, we don't need to worry about being slaughtered or being picked on for covering someone's shift or for trying to do good. In general, Peter's saying is, overall, who is there to harm you? Um, not many people are going to be angry by Christians, by Christians serving, by giving of yourself to the poor or helping those who are lost. 
uh, it's not really a shaming thing to worry about. It's kind of just everyone enjoys the common grace of it, and we kind of just go on. But I do want to find a word here. Um, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So zealous, um, maybe not your typical vocabulary. Uh, the word eager, I think, is helpful. Devoted, uh, fervent is maybe more of a Christian word, but eager is helpful for me. So Christians, in this sense, it looks like, are called to be those who are more eager to do what is good. So we shouldn't be the ones who sit on the sidelines and watch and hope that someone steps in and help. We should be the ones who are ready to fight, who are ready to stick it out, who are ready to be involved and to serve. So even, if, even something as simple as covering someone's shift at work or baking extra cookies for your neighbor, we should be zealous for doing what is good. That, that's the Christian mandate, according to Peter here. And just living the Christian life in general, again, it won't really bring much trouble. And that's what Peter's trying to say. Who's, who's going to harm you for doing what is good? Um, in the midst of pain... Uh, and suffering, if you're doing what is good, no one's going to lash out at you. Uh, but as Jesus said, we need to be careful with that. Uh, Jesus speaks about the Pharisees. who He, would, he said that they, they would call a big crowd to watch them. Uh, then they'd tweet about it later on Twitter. And then they would make sure they share their Facebook videos of them doing good. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You, that's not the point of you doing good. You should be zealous for doing good because of what Peter says in verse 12. Because the <coughs> eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So when we do good... Uh, we're doing what he said after that. Jesus said, So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So our zealousness, our eagerness to do good, uh, is never for the accolades of man, even when that's hard. We, we want to be looked at. We want to be high-fived. We want to say, Good. Uh, but our Father, the only two eyes that matter, says, Well done. So that's why we're zealous for good, is because God has delight in what we do, uh, Titus chapter 2 says Jesus saved us so that we would be a people zealous for good works. So a reason that we're saved is to do good works. So we, we should be eager to do those things. And Ephesians 2 says that God actually planned those works beforehand. So again, God cares about what you do as a Christian. But then in verse 14, there's kind of this but. There's this, this other reasoning. Uh, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So who is there to harm you? But if someone does harm you, you will be blessed. So Peter's giving you a worst case scenario, but the best thing that could happen. Right? Worst case, you're going to get harmed. Best case, it's for your good. You're going to be blessed. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who are before you. So that thinking is almost impossible. We don't, we don't want to wait till then. We want to be rewarded now. And Jesus is saying, when you suffer, count as an honor. You're, you're getting attacked for being a Christian, for being one of mine. That's good. You, you'll be blessed in the future. It's for your good then. So we need to trust that we're called to see the reward. And Jesus even says the word rejoice. So we, we need to count it joy that we're being called Worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And we rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. So the pain may be great here, but the reward is greater, right? The point is, is it'll be almost swallowed up because of the reward of Christ, right? So when we're insulted and sought to be harmed, God blesses us in and rewards us in it, even when we don't see it. So just as you look, so if you've ever had a surgery or some kind of medical procedure, um, I don't like going to the doctor. I actually really, really... I don't, I, I don't know if I hate it, but I, I just I don't like it. it. Weirds me out. I always get nervous about things they say. But when you go through a surgery or go through some kind of medical procedure, 
Um, you look through the surgery to say, okay, when it's done, I'll have that. So if you look through, you know, some kind of surgery, you're thinking, okay, this, this part's going to stink. I'm going to be on my back for two weeks, or I'll be in bed for a month, or I can't walk right for a, a week or whatever. But you look through the pain to the, to the outcome of what's going to happen. That's kind of how God is telling you to act in your suffering. Yeah, it, it's going to stink and it's hard, but you're looking through that to the point. There's a point, there's a reward, there's an outcome that's better than the pain. That's what Peter's trying to say. So for the, for the Christian, uh, God rewards us in our pain. Uh, when we suffer, it's worth it because of Christ. So through our daily frustrations and our trials, we look through the pain to the reward. So it's almost a rewarding pain, so to speak. Uh, there's a, a sanctifying suffering in us. It's building us for good. So when we are suffering, we look to reward. Remember the phrase, you are blessed. That's what Peter says. We look to that. And now in this, Peter's going to tell us why we shouldn't fear. So again, don't fear because you're rewarded, but why should we fear those people in general? Why should I not be scared of those who are out to get me? So in verses 14 through 15, the end of verse 14 through 15, uh, Peter writes this. You will be blessed. Then he says this. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. I love the phrase, uh, have no fear of them, do not be troubled. Uh, but if you think of the context of this letter again, when people are being attacked and fed to lions and attacked by uh, Romans, uh, for Peter to say, don't be afraid, it's kind of absurd. Peter, do you understand what you're telling those Christians, or even for us who even smaller things, in our opinion, of losing your job or being, you know, called the goody two shoes and being picked on. Like Peter, are you, are you serious? Like that's that's hard. I they're scary. I don't want to lose my job. That's 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 I'm I'm scared. What Peter's trying to say is not to be afraid. Because again, I'm going to echo some words of Christ here. This is what Jesus says. Uh, I'll give you half the verse, and I'll finish the half later. Uh, Jesus says this. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So friends, if you think about people who are against you, um, I like to think I'm tough and, I, and I'm strong and I can, you know, I can deal with anything that happens. But if I have an ingrown toenail, I can't walk. I mean, I'm a wuss. Or you know, if I have the flu, I won't get out of bed. I mean, man sickness is a real thing. You know, so we think of men who are scary and strong and they're going to attack us. But if they get the flu, they're on the bed for weeks. They can't get out of bed. They're, they're, they're flesh. They're just man. So Peter's saying, don't fear flesh. What are you scared of man for? Don't have any fear of them. And the reason why we don't is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter talks about um, God's appointing of trials that refines us. It's meant uh, to strengthen our faith, to grow us uh, for our good. So if you have that understanding and that mindset and that thinking in context what Peter's saying, um, I think this will make more sense. So if you know anything about fire... Fire's hot. Um, I didn't have to go to school to know that. I just know that fire's hot. Um, you don't have to tell fire to be hot. It naturally just wants to burn. If you put wood on it, it'll burn. You put paper on it, it'll burn. There's no um, air. It doesn't need to be told what to do. It just does. Fire burns naturally, right? Even something that's great, if you put in your favorite iPhone, it's going to be torched. Even great things, fire uh, consumes and destroys. Um, it's desire, if you want to make it like a personal thing, fire desires to burn. It wants to destroy and to consume um, and to burn. But if you, think, if you think about it, you can use fire that's dangerous and hard and painful in a good way. So if you think of a blacksmith, they have the same fire. It naturally wants to burn. But what makes the blacksmith different is he uses the fire in a very wise way to craft and to mold things. 
So the fire still doing what it wants to. It still wants to burn and to be hot and to consume. But it takes a skillful blacksmith to shape and to remove the dross of things that he burns. Again, the fire's not intending to do that, but the blacksmith intends that for the flame. So we think about your suffering and your pain and those who are against you. Their natural desire is to do evil. There's no, they don't have to be told to be hot like fire. They just, they want to be sinful. They want to sin. But like a good blacksmith, like a good father, God puts you in, not for your destruction, but for your crafting, for your molding, for your burning away the dross. He does that for good. He's wise. Um, he does this flawlessly. And that's, that's the kind of message Peter is saying. Do not fear them. Don't be troubled. They're flames in God's furnace of affliction. They're not to burn, but to, to, to change you and for your good. <coughs> Don't fear man. Um, again, man can do real things. I'm not saying that they can't. Uh, they could fire you from your job. They can shame you. They can threaten you. They can mock you. They could damage your property, even harm you physically. I'm not neglecting that. But what Peter is saying is, Christians see it a little bit different. So you don't fear. You're not troubled by them. But in verse 15, he says this. Instead of doing that, but, right? But instead, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Um, again, I want to I wanna define some words here. So don't fear them, but honor in your hearts, esteem, lift up Christ above man. So when you see man as fearful and dangerous, they can do what they want. You look at Christ as more than that, as more fearful, as more powerful, as higher. And a couple words here I think we just kind of say, but don't actually remember what they mean. Uh, the word Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? Uh, it says, um, honor of Christ. So it's not, my name's not Kale the Father, right? It's Christ the Lord, so it's not his last name. Uh, Christ is the Messiah, means the anointed one. So he's the one that all the Old Testament was about. So Peter's making a pretty big claim by saying, Jesus is, he's that one. Honor him. He's the, all the Bible's all about him. Remember him. And then the word Lord, we always say, you know, I made Jesus my Lord and Savior, or whatever we use. Um, when we say Jesus is Lord, what it means is that he's the ruler, uh, he's the maker of all things, he's in charge of all that is. Um, in even bigger sense, there's a, a fancy word, uh, it's the Septuagint, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so it's what Peter would have probably read of Isaiah and Jeremiah, but it's in Greek. And the word kurios there, or kurios, I probably said it wrong, uh, when referring to the phrase like the Lord God or the Lord, as in God of the Old Testament, Peter used the exact same phrase here. So Peter is calling Jesus the Messiah God. So Peter's calling Jesus God, so we need to understand Lord doesn't just mean, yes, he's the master, that's true, but it's also a much bigger claim. He's the Lord of all that exists. So Jesus is God. So what he's saying here, just think of this reasoning. Do not fear man, but in your hearts look to Christ, esteem Christ, hold up Christ the Messiah as God. Man really seems a lot smaller, I think, when we do that. Yeah. Uh, there's a, uh, a Christian rapper, I'm not going to rap for you because I'm not going to sin in that way and try to do well, uh, named Shai Lin, who writes this. Uh, whether visible or invisible, spiritual or physical, plants, animals, insects, angels, demons, human beings, every one of the earth's residents, prime ministers and presidents, languages, people, groups, every nation, the whole creation, he's Lord of all. So very, very thorough. Amen. Uh, if you know something about uh, the Bible, is Peter loves in this text to go to the Old Testament. Uh, so in Isaiah chapter 8, uh, we read this. Uh, do not call conspiracy that all these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. 
Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So Peter is interpreting for us what the Old Testament's all about. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the one who the Israelites are supposed to say, we should fear him more than those people who are going to attack us. So the context of Isaiah 8 is they were, they were scared of the Assyrian invasion of an evil nation that was going to just wipe them out. And God speaks to Isaiah and says, don't fear them. They shouldn't be your fear and your dread. I should be. So what Peter is saying is we shouldn't fear, maybe we shouldn't fear those who come to overtake us. We should fear and honor Christ more, as bigger uh, as Messiah God. So we, we should single him out. We should set him apart as he's the only one. That's what the word holy here means. Um, we shouldn't fear man. We should fear the son of man. Uh, we should set apart Christ. So I think when we, we're scared of people, at least for me, I think of that one person. So I can see a group of people, but I see that one guy. So um, I'm an athlete, so just back, back in high school when I was somewhat decent at basketball, uh, we'd see a, a good team, but, but there's always one guy who scored all their points. There's always one stud point guard. You, it's, it's almost like you singled him out. Everyone sought to look at that one and nobody else. Well, that's how we fear, man. We look at one guy and say, that guy's going to get me. He's the one I'm worried about. And what Peter's saying is set apart Christ above that one. Look at Christ and look at no one else as he's the one who is to be your dread. He's the one you should fear. And as Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, he says this, Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So again, we should fear Christ, we should fear God over man. That's what Peter's trying to say. Uh, the word holy doesn't just mean God's purity, which that is true, uh, but it also means God's godness. So Jesus is set apart from all people. He's unlike us, but he's like us in the sense that he became like us. But he's God, so he's not like us. It's his Godness. It's his other than usness, if that's a word I can use. So he's set apart. There's none holy like him. He's unmatchable. He's un- incomprehensible. He's overall and separate from all created things. So that hope shames the world. You think about it. So when we suffer, we understand. My Jesus is in this. He's doing something. He's Lord over this. This is not. A, this is not random. This is not accidental. Um, even as they don't and so tend to do, God's intending it through them. They intend to harm. Jesus intends to, to change and to, to woo us to himself. That's, that's the Christ that we serve. That's the Messiah we know. And there's none like him that does that. So in, in our suffering, we begin to see more and more that Jesus is our Savior, that he's our Lord, um, and that he's the one who moves the heavens and even the hearts of man. That's how, that's how big he is. Amen. That's how we need to see him. So from that, the reason why we don't fear man is because we fear the Son of Man. With that confidence, how should we speak of Christ to others? So if you understand who Jesus is and how powerful he is and how he reigns and how he acts, that should change how we talk about him and how we understand people who don't uh, believe in him. So again, verses 15 through 16, the second half says this, So honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter tells us to always be ready to make a defense. Uh, we need to be on guard, so to speak. You have your sword always drawn. You need to be ready. You need to be understanding. Um, the Greek word here for defense, uh, if you hear the word in English, you'll know what it is. Uh, the Greek word is apologia. Um, the Greek word that we make it for English is apologetics. So it's not, it's not to say you're sorry, to apologize. But apologetics means a, a well-reasoned defense, an intelligent reply. 
Uh, it's where we get the, the Christian word, uh, Christian apologetics. So people we think of like Ravi Zacharias or Josh McDowell or Jay Warner Wallace, those are Christian apologists. They're not sorry for being Christians, they're defending the faith. That, that's where this, this is where this comes from. Uh, so, and Peter tells us the average Christian, according to this text, should be ready to make a defense. So this letter isn't just written to me as a pastoral intern, it's written to every Christian. So we should be able to understand that every Christian should be able to make a defense for the hope that they have. Uh, so does that mean that you need to know what manuscript P52 is for the Gospel of John? Does that mean that you should know the acronym SLED when you're talking about abortion? I don't think so, but I think it does. I don't think, I'm, I don't think we're called to put a law where things aren't. We're not legalists. We don't say you have to know this uh, Greek word. You have to know this understanding of abortion. You have to know this. But I think we should have a desire to want to know, okay, I want to know the scriptures. I want to know who this God that saved me is. I want to be able to understand and articulate what I believe so people can hear the gospel. So I don't think you need to know everything, but I think you should want to know some things. You should understand what you believe and why and who it is and even know the culture. But again, I'm not going to make a law where there's not a law, but we should have a desire to want to learn, want to grow, and to know Christ more. So the question is, um, do you know the God that saved you? Do you know His Word? Um, are you ready to make a defense? If, if the time were to come, has anybody ever asked you for the hope that you have? I've heard someone ask a question, if nobody has, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe you're not living the way that we should be demonstrating Christ is. So knowing Christ and making defense for Him also aids you in your worship of Him. At least for me it does. When I understand and see the Bible as bigger than I thought it was, I go, man, this God is outstanding. Mm. So it also causes worship. Um, but notice that Peter, I think he does this for, I feel like this is just written just for me. I mean, I know it's not, but this last part nails me. Uh, semicolon, stop your thought. So for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So it's great to know the Bible. It's great to know theology. It's great to know how to discuss evolution. Oh, Those things are great. But if you're not doing with gentleness and respect, I think you're sinning. Because mm. this, is, this is the command, yet, you need to do it this way. That's really good. Um, so we're called to do it, not to just win an argument, to stomp someone down. Our goal is to show them Christ. It, it's, not to, it's not to destroy Bill and I's arguments, make him look like a fool. It's not to defend young earth creationism. It's to say, look, this is the God who made you. He's, he's, he's Lord. That's the point of apologetics. And we do it with gentleness and respect because we think about it. You're defending a faith that you once didn't have. So why do you have it now? Well, if you've been through 1 Peter, you know that 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 3, <coughs> chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 10, say repeatedly over and over, it is not because you're a Christian. It is not because you're smart. It's not because I'm in a Christian family. It's because God was merciful to me. So we're calm and gentle, not because we're intelligent, because God was kind. Uh, we don't seek to show up our wisdom. We seek to show Christ, the wisdom of God. That's the point of why we do this. So we're gentle and we're patient in hopes that God will grant them repentance. That's why we do it. Your response actually matters. Um, and I think it's really cool to see God's twofold reasoning in the Bible. Um, Christ is Lord, so He is the Lord of all hearts, even unbelievers. And yet you're called to communicate it well and gentle. Because those both matter. Those aren't at odds. They don't contradict one another. Um, God changes hearts. You're supposed to do it well. Those aren't at odds. They're, they're actually to prompt us to want to do it better. Because your means of communicating is God's means of saving. So that's why we do it well. That's why we seek to be kind, to be respectful, and to preach the gospel well.
Uh, Blaise Pascal said this. The first part of his quote will sound weird, so listen to the second part. Make the gospel look attractive. Then show them that it actually is. So that's what we're called to do. Make the gospel look good and say, it actually is that good. He, he really does that. He really saves sinners. That's what we're called to do. In verse 16, the tail end of that should be that you should have a good conscience so that those who slander you should be put to shame. So our only charge as being a Christian, the only thing that people should be uncomfortable with is not our character, but, our, but, but the content of the gospel. Uh, the gospel by itself is offensive enough. Uh, I don't need to add to that by being a jerk. Um, in the past, in, in junior college, that's what I would do. I would seek to win an argument, and I, I'm sure I won plenty, but I know I hardened a lot of people. And God could have used that for good and could have saved them. I'm not saying he can, but I know in my heart that I sinned a lot in that way because I, I was just so excited to win an argument, I just blast people with information and didn't pull them to Christ. But overall, our content should be, if that's, if that's dismissed, that's okay. But our character should be the thing that you say, you know, but he, man, he was nice about it, though. Dang it. You know, that, or at least he wasn't a jerk, so we should be snarky. Uh, the gospel is offensive enough. Let the gospel do what it does. Um, and that's it. And those charges are brought against you of he was rude, he cussed me out, he said this, he told me I was going to hell and called me this and this and this. What we should put them to shame is the false accusation. So um, I like telling a story about myself, but this one actually is relevant. Uh, in, in Evansville, for a while, I waited tables in school at Applebee's, and I worked with uh, a guy who was in a homosexual relationship named Mike. He was a waiter, uh, hoping to be married. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, I'm very talkative, as I am currently. Uh, so talking about Jesus, it really isn't a problem for me. Uh, I'm still nervous about it, but I can do it more comfortably over time. Um, and he knew I was a Christian. Uh, a couple co-workers and I talked about it, so he kind of overheard. Um, so one day, Mike approached me and said, Hey, what's your views on homosexuality? Does that work? So it's very, okay, kind of caught me off guard. So I was ready, but I was still caught off guard. And I communicated with office. I said, look, you know, I believe that um, all sexual offenders, whether it's by same-sex sins or opposite-sex sins, are just guilty as those who lie and cheat and steal. And those are going to face God's wrath. So I, I did the, the regular gospel. I didn't single out his sin. I singled out my sins, but also talking about his sin. Um, I know that I did it well, kind, because I was really nervous not to blow him off. I, I did not want to be rude. Um, but I remember in the back, a couple days later, uh, at Applebee's especially, they have a long kitchen where all the waiters get their food out for the, from the cook, and they bring all their plates up to the, uh, to the tables. And I was back there with multiple waiters getting our food ready, and our boss was back there. So Mike walks back and says, hey, boss, did you know that Kale told me I'm a fag and I'm going to hell? And I just was sitting there thinking, I did not say that. But in God's providence, in His kindness to change my heart, to be with my words, have on a word that, um, because of my character before that, the boss has said, Kale would never say that. He'd stop. And as his text is, he was put to shame. Well, okay. So those accusations were dropped, not because I'm great, but because the gospel is offensive, not me. So the point is, we should seek not to be rude, but to preach the gospel well to be clear, to be helpful, um, but our conduct should never be offensible. It should be our content. Of course, it doesn't mean you should go around saying you're going to hell, even though those things are true in the gospel, but we need to be communicating effectually, uh, being kind, and using correct terminology. So the shame that comes from these accusations towards unbelievers, especially those um, of verbal harassment, uh, I think if you think about these things um, in the news lately, 
Um, how many accusations are about so and so sexually assaulting somebody or having a or verbally assaulting me or whatever? Um, and then they come true, and these men are what? If you've seen the news, they are ashamed. I mean, they sit there and say, yeah, I did that. I mean, there's no smile, there's no denial. Um, may our conduct never be anything close to that. May we never say, you're right, I did that. I was a jerk. And if we do, of course, we need to repent and apologize, but may our conduct never be uh, worthy of accusation. So after seeing that suffering actually causes us to look into the cross, look into the scriptures, to know Christ more, the last thing Peter's going to point us to is our final hope. So all this is going to help us to look, um, at least for me, probably the brightest gem in suffering is our trust in the sovereignty of God, that He is over <coughs> that somehow He's in this. So this is kind of Peter's big crescendo. So here's what, he's, he, here's what Peter's done so far. Who is there to harm you? If it does happen, God will bless you in this. So have no fear. Christ is Lord of all hearts and nations and peoples. Set him apart, set him above, know that he is over them. Because of that, give a defense for what you believe, know that Jesus can change their heart if you also watch your conduct and do it well. So that in the end, no one can accuse you of anything wrong. And then verse 17 comes with a big, a big ending. For, because it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So overall, what Peter's trying to say is, you should be suffering as a criminal. If you're a Christian and you suffer because you cussed somebody out, that's all on you. That was really dumb. That was a bad decision. Peter's saying it's better to suffer doing good. You should be suffering for the right things. Don't seek out suffering. Don't be looking to be a martyr. You should be suffering for the things that does glorify God, namely his gospel. So it's better to suffer for doing good. But who is there to harm you? But what Peter's saying is if you do, it's God's Will So again, it, this is an assurance. This is not to scare us or to bring us fear. Um, this ending for Peter in this text is meant to comfort us, to give us hope that when we suffer, it's not random. God's not sitting back just thinking, oh my goodness, what happened? How could I not stop that? Peter's trying to give us some hope. So imagine if Peter did say all these things that are great in the text, and then at the end would just say, you know, I'm sorry to hear you're suffering. God's, God's really sorry to hear about it too. He's He's trying to be involved. Um, that would be really dumb. That wouldn't help me at all. That would make me just fear and look to something else. I would run from Christianity if God wasn't involved, if he just was watching. Um, he'd, he'd be just like me. He's not doing anything. So this is meant to be helpful. This is meant to help us love Christ and to see. Um, there's texts scattered all throughout the Bible, old and new, about God's ruling and sovereignty over evil. Um, I wanted to briefly give you two, because uh, this is about as deep as you can probably go in the Bible, in my opinion. <coughs> this will give you this will make you just wonder and worship. But my hope is that you'll worship. Um, so the first question for me that I have that rises in my heart this is the main thing I want to address here. Does God really do that? Like, can God really will it to happen? How how does that happen? How is He not wrong? What like how does that even happen? And I want to give you two texts, and actually one is from Peter as he's preaching. So the same thought. In Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter is preaching after Jesus ascended into heaven. And Peter's preaching to the Jews and Gentiles, and Peter says this. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So I want us to see the twofold thing, because this is very... This is very important. I don't want us to go into error or to sin by anything we say. I want us to hold true to all the scriptures and say this. Um, notice that there is blame in that. Uh, Peter says, you killed and crucified. 
So the blame goes for the blame goes for those who are evil. So sin is never God's fault. We we sin. We want to sin. It's it's like the fire. It naturally wants to. We want to sin. We do it. Uh, so it says Peter gives them responsibility. They are responsible for it. They desire to put Jesus to death. But at the same time, there's this mysterious working of this Jesus was delivered up by evil men, but this is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So again, somehow God in this will that evil would happen without sinning. And how that happens, we're not here to, to explain. It's not my job. My job is to say this is just what it says. Worship and wonder. And that's the point of this text, to worship and to wonder. Remember, God doesn't do evil, nor does he tempt anyone, as James 1 says. But he wills and brings to pass without sinning. Um, a good text to think about is what we mean and purpose for evil, God means and purposes for good. That's Genesis chapter 50. So God can ordain it in such a way that he's sinless when sinners want to sin. How that works, again, I don't understand. Um, but Acts 4, 27, and I want to give you one more. Um, it echoes the exact same thing. He talks about Herod and Pilate, the Jews, the Gentiles, all those who said, crucify him. Crucify him, all the cowardly acts of Pilate and Herod to say, hey, nothing wrong with this guy, just give him up. Uh, the apostles say this, all those things happen to do whatever God, your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. So again, we see the responsibility put on evil men, but God's sovereignty involved. He's not making anything happen that doesn't want to happen. He's also ordaining all that does without being evil. And that's a huge sin that happened, that God would be crushed, that God would be killed. So what does that mean for us? I think what it means is if you look at it, all the evil and suffering we go through, which is real, um, compared to the cross, I don't want to minimize it, but I want to minimize it. It's not not real, but compared to the cross, it is, the cross is huge. And if that was in a plan, if that was ordained and planned by God, then we should know that our pain is it's never wasted. God is never just watching. It's never idle. It's never working out of purpose. It's never just meaningless. God doesn't do that. <coughs> so, but there's a mystery that God hates the evil that's being done to you at the same time. Christian, he, he hates the evil that's being done to you. He hates it when you're suffering for doing good. He's not, he doesn't like it. He doesn't smile and he hates it. And God will judge. He will put to shame those who put you to shame because he's good. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's how we should end that text. So we can trust ultimately that God's hand and plan run the universe. That does include suffering that comes to us. And how that happens, how it's designed, we're not called to fully understand. But I want us to remember those four things. That in suffering and shame, we're caught, it should cause us in God's design to look to the reward of heaven. To see that Christ is Lord over all. To know and to trust the scriptures, to defend the faith, and to trust in the sovereignty of God. And I think the best way to remember it for me is God's design is to refine. It's not for evil, it's to refine. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you uh, for First Peter. Um, God, help us to, to really believe and not just have a head nod, but to really believe that you, your design is to refine. It's not to harm us, it's not to hurt us, even though it does. Uh, but your design is for our good. God, help us to trust those who are, are hurting. Help us to be with them, to walk with them. And help us to point them to Christ. Help us to be ready to make a defense. Um, help us to know that suffering is being worked out by you and that you will deal with all things. God, we love you. We thank you for your Son who has suffered greatly for us and bore our shame on the cross. In his name we pray. Amen.